0: Turn, if you would, to John chapter 14, as we pick up right where we left off last week. John chapter 14, I want to read one more time, uh, verses 1 through uh, 18. Uh, My prayer is that as we go over this and over this and over this, it would become um, really ingrained in our thinking and in our hearts. So John 14:1 through18 says this, "Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going." Thomas said to him, "Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? I will come to you. Let's just pray one more time. Father, I pray that this promise... There are a bunch of promises here that Christ makes. Remind us of this truth. Give us ears to hear, Lord. Help us to understand these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I believe that one of the biggest problems in our churches is that we don't understand church history. Um, We don't know how we got here and how that all connects us to the great uh, cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. So in light of that, I want to give you just a a glimpse into the background of one of the most important documents for all of Christianity that, that Christianity really has ever produced outside of Scripture, of course. And that is the Nicene Creed. This important statement, the Nicene Creed, is, was actually produced um, by two church councils, one that was held in Nicaea in the year A.D. 325, and one in Constantinople in A.D. 381, so just about 50 or 60 years apart. And it was also the results, really, of a century of debate over the nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so if you know anything about history, you know that in A.D. 324, the Emperor Constantine, um, he kind of reunited the Roman Empire under a single throne. He was himself a, a recent convert to Christianity, and while the details of his conversion are a little bit sketchy, he did put a stop to the widespread persecution of Christians that really began in Acts chapter 6. And scattered believers all throughout the empire. One of the results of that scattering, of the believers being scattered throughout the Roman Empire, was that the theology of the church had drifted in some areas. Really, kind of geographically, even in some places, their theology had drifted. And the emperor, and likely his advisors, saw the need to unify the the beliefs of the church. And while it's common today to kind of overemphasize Constantine's role and authority in, in influencing the shape of Christianity as we know it, there's no doubt that this was one of the critical kind of turning points in the history of Christianity. God is sovereign, and God is sovereign over the hearts of kings. And so just to be clear, Constantine did not invent the idea that Jesus is God. Constantine did not decide which books would be included in the New Testament. Both of those beliefs are kind of common and they're completely false arguments today. So, however though, following the pattern of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, this church council was brought together to resolve a problem that had sprung up a few years earlier and had left the Christian church pretty greatly divided. So just a few years before this, and again, we're, we're in the year 300s, right? So we're uh, just a, a couple of generations after Christ. Um, in Alexandria in Egypt, an elder named Arius began publicly preaching that Jesus was not God at all but that he was a a spiritual servant of the true Most High God, who alone was almighty, preeminent, and the creator of all things. Basically, Jesus is not God. He's a servant of God, he said. After all, his argument went like this. Jesus was prone to emotion. The Father is always in control of his emotions. Jesus grew and learned, and the Father never changes. Jesus died. But the Father is immortal and eternal. Therefore, Arius reasoned, only the Father could be considered uncreated and and therefore completely self-existent. Well, his bishop, um, who was a man by the name of Alexander, he disagreed. He pointed out that one of the eternal attributes of God is that he is Father, This means two things. First, it's not possible to be a father without also having offspring. And the fact that God is eternally a father means that he eternally has a son. And secondly, since God is perfect and not subject to change, how could God change from not being a father to being a father? Well, to put it kind of briefly... The council concluded that Arius was tampering with some pretty crucial distinctions that separate God from humanity. And this was really a debate about the authority of Scripture and a debate about the very nature of Jesus Christ. There's much more to the story. It's a a fascinating moment of church history. Athanasius comes into the scene. Um, He argues many points of truth against Arius. Legend has it that jolly old Saint Nick also was there. He punched Arius in the mouth for his heretical statements, Saint Nicholas. Later, as the creed was developed a little bit more to include an explanation of the nature and role of the Holy Spirit, the Eastern Church, now the Eastern Orthodox Church, split away from the Western Church because they couldn't accept the truth that in the statement that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. But the Holy Spirit comes, is sent by the Father and the Son. Now I know that even right now, not everybody in here is interested in history in general. And sometimes we sort of have this um, no-Creed-but-the-Bible way of thinking. But the Nicene Creed is one of those historical Christian documents that if you don't agree with the statements that it makes, it doesn't mean you don't have to understand everything about it. But if you don't agree with it, if you disagree with it, then you you probably can't be called a Christian. That was the intent of our church fathers, those who went before us. So let me read for you the Nicene Creed. It's, It's fairly simple. It goes like this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light. True God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence or substance as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. He was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke to us by the, through the prophets. We believe in one holy catholic or universal and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Now there are a couple of different translations to that creed, but that's the gist of it. And so today as we as we move forward here in John chapter 14 as we, as we continue our study looking at Jesus' introduction of another paraclete, another helper, as he says here. Listen to the core essentials of that statement, of what that statement says that Christians believe about the Holy Spirit. Just listen to this part again. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, and he spoke through the prophets. Now there is so much more that we believe about the Holy Spirit. But we believe that he is the Lord, the giver of life. I mentioned this very briefly last week, but I, but I want to just go back this morning and remind you of what Jesus said about this truth. In John chapter 3, verses 5 to 8, in speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus said this, "...Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit." And then he said this explicitly in John chapter 6, verse 63. He says this, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. It is the Spirit who gives life. If you're a Christian here today, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, it's because the Holy Spirit has given you life. And the result, as, as a result of that, he is to be, as the creed says, he is to be worshipped and glorified along with the Father and the Son. So remember, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's the fulfillment of the promise. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. This is the promise that Jesus is talking about here. Last week I said that the greatest promise of God is seen in the words, for example, uh, to the a- angel, um, uh, J- to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Uh, you can see the greatest promise of God. It's Jesus, and you can see it all throughout the scriptures, worded in different ways. But I like this one. The angel says to Joseph, Matthew 1, 21, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The greatest promise of God his people. He will save his people from their sins. And the second promise is like it. It's when Jesus said, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And so this morning as we continue our look here at this another helper, we need to dive a little bit deeper into this promise. Because while it is true that Jesus is the great promise of the Old Testament, Jesus is the great promise of the New Testament. Jesus is the great promise of God. He is the consolation of Israel, as Simeon proclaimed there in the temple in Luke chapter 2, when he held that newborn Messiah in his arms. It's true that Jesus is the great promise of the scriptures of the Old Testament. And the Holy Spirit really is the great promise of the New Testament. We also need to remember that the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Godhead, of the Trinity, He's also very present and promised throughout the Old Testament as well. In fact, there are Old Testament sightings of the Holy Spirit. Different times, and it goes as far back, really, as the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. From the very beginning of creation, we can see that the work of the Holy Spirit has been to complete and sustain what the Father has planned and what the Son has accomplished. Namely, creation and new creation. And at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it's the Holy Spirit who comes to grant power to the church, even as Jesus promised. So Acts chapter 2, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But again, even in the Old Testament, it was predicted. Prophets proclaimed that the promised Holy Spirit would, would bring abundant blessings from God. In particular, Isaiah spoke of a time when the Spirit would bring great renewal from God. So Isaiah 32, just listen to verses 14 to 18. Think of, we read through Isaiah just over the last year. Think of this prophecy, prophecy of a barren land. The palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured out. "...for us, upon us, from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever." My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. This will happen, he says, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. This is the promise of Isaiah chapter 44 verse 3 in which God says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Ezekiel. Ezekiel the prophet mentions very similar concepts many times throughout his book. And the apostle Peter in his first sermon he picks up on the prophet's words. He picks up on Joel's words, and he puts them together with Ezekiel's. So, so listen to Acts two seventeen to 21. This is Peter preaching, and he's quoting both Joel and Ezekiel. He says, And in these last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your, daughters, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, think about all of these promises for a moment. Think about the promise of salvation. Think about the promise, as we saw last week, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. What do these promises teach us? What do they tell us about the giver of the promise? This is really, I believe, where we need to start Too often we think of the promises of God, and and I know I jump right to how this affects me. I think of how I benefit from the the promises of God. I dwell in the blessings of the promises, and, and believe me, there is nothing wrong with thinking about those things. There's nothing wrong with thinking about the blessings for me of the promises, the blessings for you of the promises of God. But we need to be sure to go back to the giver of the promise. The giver of the promise. So consider verse 16 again here. John 14, 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Just think of that statement for a moment. Because we are not uh, Eastern Orthodox, and because I mentioned this as a part of the um, Nicene Creed, I want to be sure to point out that we believe that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, not simply the Father. Jesus will say right down, in, really in chapter 15, verse 26, he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Son of God is active in the sending of the Spirit of God to the people of God. They are one, after all. And so there's a little bit of a play on words here as we think about the giver of the promise. It is true that Jesus is speaking. And so therefore, it is Jesus who who makes the promise, I will ask. Did you catch that? Who gives this promise? Well, Jesus makes the promise, and his promise is, I will ask. This is kind of part A of the promise. And it's directly connected to the the asking that we do, to the prayers that we do. So verses 13 and 14, remember this. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it, and I will ask the Father, verse 16 says. Jesus is promising to pray. Jesus is promising to intercede for us. He is promising to pray for us, to pray with us. He is promising to take our requests and make them known to God. Do you know that when the Spirit intercedes for us in groanings too deep for words, do you know that the Spirit and the Son, both in praying for us and praying what we don't even know what to ask for, the first thing that we needed to ask for, that the, that the disciples needed to ask for, was the Holy Spirit. They needed another helper. They needed to know that God would be with them forever. And so Jesus translates this for them and says, I will ask the Father and he will send you another helper. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 assures us that as part of his high priestly function... He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is praying for us. And he knew at this point in history, in John chapter 14, at that moment in history, the greatest need for the remaining 11, the greatest need for Jesus' disciples was for the Spirit of God. And he fulfills that promise in Acts chapter 2. This is really the part part of the assurance that we have as believers. This is why Paul will write in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, when he kind of is winding up his letter, or winding down his letter. He says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus because Jesus himself has promised to pray for us I will ask but he's really not talking about prayer in general he's being very specific So it is true that Jesus will ask of the Father in general. He prays for us. That's what Hebrews 7.25 is very specifically about. He prays for us. But here he's being very specific. He's going to ask the Father to send the paraclete, another helper. So Jesus does always live to intercede for us. And here he is promising to ask for the Father to send the Spirit. This is really part B of the promise. The giver of the promise, or really I should say the fulfiller of the promise, is the Father. I will ask and He will give. Do you see how these, they can't be separated? I will ask and He will give. This is what we need to see here. The Father, as Jesus calls Him here, He's both my Father and your father. Jesus will sometimes use different uh, uh, modifiers to explain who the father is. Here he says, the father, implied in that. He's not saying, my father. Sometimes he does. He's not saying, your father. Sometimes he does. He's both. He is both my father and your father. The same father who gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life is the same father who loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This Father has promised to not leave us alone, but will give us, send us another helper, another paraclete. He will give us the Spirit who will be our advocate, who will be our comforter, who will be our helper. This is, this is the kindness of God toward us. He has promised to be with us as our God, and He has promised to be with us as our Father. Listen to the promise that Paul quotes in Second in Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says this, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separated from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Our loving Father has promised to never leave us alone. And He has given us His Spirit as the guarantee of our eternal dwelling with Him. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, just just verses uh, 13 and 14. Paul says, in Him, that is in Christ, you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What's our inheritance? Eternal life with the Father and the Son and the Spirit who God promised us right here, Jesus promises us right here, I will, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. We have the Holy Spirit now. If you have trusted in Christ, if you have heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Jesus Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the promise made right here, The promise made really throughout all of the Old Testament, those places like in in uh, Isaiah that I mentioned. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Can you see? Can you see that the giver of the promise is truly both the Father and the Son? The Father fulfills this promise by sending the Spirit But that doesn't make Jesus any any less involved. In fact, Jesus is vital to the promise because he is active in the promise. We could even say that Jesus is the maker of the promise. The Father is the fulfiller of the promise. But God is the giver of the promise. Because the promise will be realized through the prayers of Christ. Jesus says, I will pray to the Father. Again, he will intercede for us because he is our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If we've said this here once, we've said it a thousand times. Our greatest need is Christ. And the Father and the Son know that. And so he has not left us as orphans. Instead, he has poured out his Spirit upon us from on high. Remember that passage from Isaiah. The wilderness has become a fruitful field. And the fruitful field has been deemed a forest because God has poured out his spirit on us from on high. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness. Righteousness will abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. Do these words ring a bell? (laughs) Justice, righteousness, peace. The result of righteousness are quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. Every time we, when Ben or I come up and we begin the service by reading grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus the Lord. We start every week something like that. They're quotes from the letters that the apostles write. Um, Mostly apostles. Quotes from the New Testament letters. Almost all of the New Testament letters start with some form of that. Sometimes the word mercy is put in there. Sometimes the word peace is in there. May grace, mercy, and peace abide with you forever because of Jesus Christ. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit being fulfilled. This is why we read these things every week so that we are reminded week in and week out that these words are true, that justice now dwells in the wilderness. Righteousness is abiding in this fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness quietness and trust forever my people will abide in peaceful habitation in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places i will never leave you nor forsake you behold i am with you forever even to the end of the age and i will become uh, and i will welcome you and i will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me says the lord almighty And it is because of the giver of the promise that we can begin to understand now the depth of the promise. So let's look at the depth of the promise. We could take this in in two directions. And I, I think the scripture here does this. Let me read these two verses again, 16 and 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. First, he says at the very end of verse 16, a part of the depth of the promise is the word forever, to be with you forever. Forever. You will never again, if you're a Christian, if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, you will never again know what it's like to need another comforter and not have one. You will never again know what it's like to need another comforter and not have one. That doesn't mean you'll never need comfort again. It doesn't mean you'll never need to be reminded of God's promises. Just the opposite. We need to be reminded as often as possible. It doesn't mean that you don't need to hear the gospel preached regularly. We need these things regularly. That's where we find our comfort. That's how the comforter works. This means That you can truly have assurance. You can truly live in security, knowing that He has not left you alone. He has not left you to bear the burdens of this world by yourself. And the depth of the promise is that He will be with you forever. Forever. You will never again know what it's like to be without an advocate. You can know for certain that the Holy Spirit is interceding for you with groanings too deep for words, and it is specifically how he helps us in our weaknesses. He goes to the Father on our behalf, advocating for us. You will never again know what it's like to be without an advocate. So think about this for a moment. We believe that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. They are fully united as one God. Our one God is praying for us. The the Spirit and the Son are engaged in prayer to the Father on our behalf. and, And they are one. And while that may be hard for us, in fact it's probably impossible in this life for us to completely understand that, the simple takeaway is this, Our God is for us. He is advocating among the Godhead on our behalf. God is praying for us on our behalf. If you are his, he is not looking to destroy you. If you are his, he is not looking to belittle you. If you are his, he is not looking to leave you alone. He is for you. And if God is for us, who in the world can be against us or in the universe can be against us? Forever. This is the depth of the promise. You will never again know what it like know what it feels like to be without a helper. He has not left you to try to figure out these deep things of God. He has not left you to try to figure these things out alone. In fact, the paraclete, that word helper there, the paraclete will continue the work that Jesus began as he teaches you all things and brings to your remembrance the things that he has said to us. This is the, that's the promise to the apostles down in verse 26. And it's how the work continues through the word of God today. So, so Christian, you will never be apart from God never you may feel like it sometimes you may feel like god is silent sometimes but he's not silent he has given us a lot of words and he is with us even when we even when we dwell in the dust even when we face our own mortality even when we go to our own funeral Because then we will be dwelling in the house of the Father. And he will be with us. And that will be when our faith becomes sight. Well, probably a few days before the funeral, but you know what I mean. When he dwells with us, we dwell with him. Not only with the Spirit, but with the Son who has gone to prepare the place for us. And the Father whom we will see face to face. This is the depth of this promise. It's forever. It's forever. And the other direction that we could kind of take this depth of this promise is verse 17. Listen to this again. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. The depth of this promise is that God's people are to be set apart. The indwelling Holy Spirit, the paraclete, marks us off as distinct from the world. The world doesn't understand. The world doesn't acknowledge the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But you do. But we do as his people. Because the Holy Spirit, because he is spirit, his work is done spiritually. It's done inwardly and invisibly. And it isn't until we begin to see the fruit of the Spirit that we can see the Spirit working, right? Christ was the Word become flesh. And the Spirit is of the same glory, of the same power and truth. And it causes God's, and using God's Word will, will work on our own spirits to conform us to the image of Christ. Again, this is verse 26. He will teach you in all truth. It is the Holy Spirit that helps us understand God's word. It's the Holy Spirit that uses, that uses God's word to transform our mind, to renew our minds, to transform our hearts. The Spirit will enlighten our minds with the knowledge of the truth, and it will conform, uh, conform and, and build up our faith in the one who gives us the words of life. You know him because you know Christ. That's what verse 17 is saying. Remember, he has said, because you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now he's saying, you know him because you know me. Because you know Christ, you know the Father, who gives another paraclete, whom you know because you know Christ, who has promised, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. That's verse 18. As I've been working through this chapter for the last however long, that verse 18 keeps standing out to me. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus Christ. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will ask the Father and he will send another paraclete, another advocate, another comforter, another helper to be with you forever. That's the promise that we need to remember today forever let's pray oh father please remind us of this truth that even as we leave here today we are tempted in our flesh sometimes to just forget about these things to not think about them to not talk about them to pick up our bibles again next Sunday morning and oh yeah this is where we left off remind us of the truth of your promises the trustworthiness of your promises remind us that your spirit is with us and will be with us forever that yes we are to be we are to be set apart from the world and that the holy spirit is what does that lord remind us of the truth of those promises of justice and mercy and righteousness, and peace that are ours in Christ Jesus because you are faithful. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.